Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. I'd like to take this time to wish a happy birthday to my neighbor across the street, who is apparently turning 50. The reason I know this is because they got some big shiny gold mylar balloons that are a 5 and a 0 and put them up in their window. So, happy birthday. When I first saw those balloons, though, I didn't realize that it was supposed to represent the number 50. I thought it was the word, so and that it was our neighbors expressing that they were unimpressed with us, which frankly seemed a little bit rude. Eventually, Lisa was able to explain to me that that's probably the number 50, and that balloon font options are somewhat limited, which makes a lot of sense. I just wish that I'd talked to her sooner, before I spent all that money on a set of Mylar balloons that spell out the words, You know, it's not like your stories are exactly fucking fascinating, Gary. Man, who knew balloons were so expensive? I guess you can't put a price on spite. Anyway, happy birthday, Gary. And without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Once upon a midnight dreary, I read comics, weak and weary, gulfed in many a quaint and curious series of tangled-up plots. Well, I puzzled, eyes a-crossing, at the subplots came a-tossing, cause the writer was only glossing, glossing ver his previous thoughts. This damn editor, I muttered, glossing over these previous plots, I'm damn near about to plots. Ah, distinctly I'm recalling, as a villain was downfalling, quite internally he was bawling that his plans had come to naught. But now he said he planned it, and inside I'm screaming, damn it, from this book I'm bout to lam it, cause this writer does this lots. For this famed prolific writer has devices like this lots, they're as common as dead doombots. Presently I grew frustrated as the villain was elated, but I said, this retcon certainly has got me pissed. For his scheme was Rube Goldbergian, of which I could find one million, ways so quaintly he'd come done in, done in by his plan, I wis. Though I sure cannot believe it, believe it was a plan, I wis, so this writer I dismiss. But then I do find me yearning for more story to be learning, wishing hopelessly for stories, though they did deprive me bliss. The wolf's lair was poor I caught in, though the lad had been forgotten. Could I go and throw my lot in with a master mix or miss, who would tell me about these stories, stories that I miss? Could they give a synopsis? Thanks, Devin. That was impressive. Speaking of things that Devin's done that have impressed me, uh, Devin and his husband Brian just started a Doom Patrol podcast called Meet Your Doom, and I listened to the first couple episodes of it. And it's really good. You guys should check it out, Uh, especially if you miss us covering like the old Silver Age goofy stuff. They start at the beginning of Doom Patrol and it's uh, it's really fun. So thanks for that as well, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 29, March 1987. Revelation. Written by Marv Wolfman and Paul Levitz. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto. Inkted by Romeo Tangal. Lettered by Augustin Moss, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited 
by Marf Wolfman and Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call Wonder Girl Starfire Cyborg The Flash, the Wally West one Beast Boy Jericho Robin, the Jason Todd one And Magenta Or possibly Magneta Teen Titans who are on the wrong side in this issue Nightwing Raven Zack Wingman Heroes who are on the right side in this issue, but definitely aren't Titans. Robot Man, Batman, Booster Gold, Dr. Midnight, the one who spells her name right, Green Lantern, the Jon Stewart one, Green Lantern, the Cat Matui one, Skyman. Teen Titans who aren't appearing in this issue because they got kidnapped by a magic hat addicted madman while working with the Teen Titans like five issues ago, and the Titans know right where he's being held, but still aren't rescuing him. Aqualad! Damn it, Titans, get your shit together. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Supposedly Septicentennial, but secretly 7th generation, surprisingly spry Centarian, evil cult leader Brother Blood, is a real asshole. After faking his own death, the perfidious pontiff left orders for his malevolent major domo, Mother Mayhem, to enlist the aid of forgetful flying frenemy of the Titans, Zack Wingman. The amnesiac alien angel proved easy pickings for the charismatic cultist. In exchange for a few pats on the head and words of praise, the winged wanderer eagerly pledged his allegiance to the Church of Blood. The sinister sanguinary sect next kidnapped a recently resurrected raven and her mother Arella. Nightwing, who had recently returned to Earth after celebrating a bad birthday by sullenly nursing a cup of coffee as the third wheel on his space girlfriend's surprise honeymoon, attempted to infiltrate the church to rescue the Azerathian abductees. Much to the angst-ridden acrobat's alarm, when he busted into Raven's cell, he found that his former teammate had already had her brain thoroughly washed by the church's chief torturer, an elaborately hatted hench person named the Confessor. Raven then used her powers to brainwash her fellow avian-themed adventurer, and soon both former titans were making television appearances proselytizing on behalf of the Church of Blood. When the rest of the team found out that a titan who wasn't Aqualad was in trouble, they leapt into action. After bolstering their ranks with former titan and current The Flash, Wally West, and replacement Robin, Jason Todd, the gang flew halfway around the world to blow up a church for no apparent reason. When this mission failed to inform them as to the whereabouts of their recently reprogrammed pals, our heroes turned on the TV and discovered that Raven, Nightwing, and Zack were scheduled to appear at a special ceremony hosted by the Church of Blood. This ceremony, which would be broadcast on network television, was to culminate with the supposed resurrection of Brother Blood himself. Our heroes readied themselves to crash the resurrection. Wally West called his possibly girlfriend, Francis Kane, and was like, Hey Fran, you know how you've sworn to never do superhero stuff and you're deeply conflicted about using your magnet powers at all because you think they might be partially responsible for the death of your dad and brother? Well, do you want to use your magnet powers to do some superhero stuff with me and my friends? I already made you a costume before asking. Francis surprisingly declined Wally's invitation to do the exact opposite of what she had explicitly told him she wanted to do. But fortunately, the gang's robot man pal, Robot Man, stopped by for no particular reason and offered to lend a mechanical hand. Well, Brother Blood's minions staged a heavily produced ceremony replete with satellite-projected holograms, chanting, drug-laced incense, and Zack Wingman flapping around like a ninny, the Titans snuck in through the church's back door and began making their way towards the stage. Mother Mayhem had not only anticipated but welcomed this interference. The nefarious nun sent the Confessor and a group of acolytes to intercept the intruding party. 
The gang made short work of the Acolytes, but the Confessor had an ace up his sleeve. He dragged out Raven's mom, Morella, and told the Titans that if they didn't surrender, he would kill her. The Titans tried to call his bluff, but it turned out the Confessor wasn't bluffing. He sent a jolt of energy through Arella and let her lifeless body fall to the floor. Damn. Meanwhile, in the church's amphitheater, a familiar figure stepped out of an orb of pure light to appear on stage next to Nightwing and Raven. A rapt audience of devotees and new converts alike cheered his arrival. Brother Blood was back. Gadzooks! Is Arella really dead? How will Wally try to win Raven back to the Titans team? And what role will the group of non-Titans heroes I listed at the beginning of this play in this issue? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... No. He whines at her about his feelings. And they show up on the last page to stand around a desk looking serious. Brother Blood gives a little speech welcoming his new followers and saying how great it is to not be dead anymore. He singles out Zack Wingman and Raven for praise, and is like, Hey, Zack, great job flapping around, buddy. Not sure I could have risen from the grave if you hadn't flapped so sincerely. Nice hustle. And Raven, you can control people's emotions, and I gain power from them. I think that's neat. We should hang out more. Zack and Raven are elated at the attention from the self-styled murderous messiah, and are like, Oh, shucks. Backstage, the Titans are pretty steamed at the Confessor for murdering Arella. They chase him down and start whooping the shit out of the death-dealing do-batter and his underlings. As the rest of the gang commences to pummeling, Robin takes the unprecedented action of actually checking to see if Arella is dead. Turns out, she isn't. Hooray! Robin tries to fill his buddies in on the good news that their erstwhile pal's mom is only mostly dead, but they're kinda busy punching angrily, so the relatively joyous tidings take a minute to get through to them. When Robin's announcement finally does sink in, the Confessor takes advantage of the distraction and flees down a hidden corridor, which he seals off behind him by activating a force field. The Titans gather around Arella and determine that while she isn't technically dead, she isn't that far off and it's unlikely that a hospital would be able to do anything for the displaced Azerathian. Surprisingly, it is Beast Boy who proposes a solution. The fighting must have jostled as few lonely brain cells against one another and sparked a rare idea. The anamorphic adolescent suggests that maybe if they can convince Raven to stop being brainwashed, they can get the avian avatar empath to use her healing powers to cure her dying mom. Robin volunteers to stay behind and watch over Arella while the rest of the heroes forge ahead and try to get their mesmerized teammates to snap out of it, and maybe beat up Brother Blood while they're at it. Good luck, guys! Around the world, the media landscape is dominated by analysis of Brother Blood's apparent resurrection and discussion of whether or not the alleged miracle is genuine. Blood's acolytes quickly blow up the satellites which they had used to project the more spectacular special effects of the ceremony, destroying all evidence of their shenanigans. The Titans' friends and loved ones watch the story develop with varying levels of concern. Meanwhile, Brother Blood, ever the showman, whips his audience into a frenzy, while his technical crew monitors the emotion levels of those in attendance. I'm not sure exactly how those computers are measuring emotions, but they got some charts and graphs going, so they must be doing something. Maybe they just welded together a whole bunch of those love tester novelty machines from a whole bunch of dive bars. And so, like, Mother Mayhem is like, 
As you can see from these charts, the average viewer's reading has risen from clammy to hubba hubba. When the mean reading of this data set reaches hot tamale, that is when we will strike. As the world watches on, Brother Blood continues to speak about what a cool guy he is. He's like, you guys saw how I came back from the dead, right? Pretty cool, huh? Plus, I'm pals with this angel. And I got this neat snake skull hat. So what do you say? Is everybody aboard the worshipping me train? Of course you are. Choo-choo. Or, you know, words to that general effect. The point is, he's very good at crowd work. Just when the congregation is on its feet, awash with religious fervor, the Teen Titans Kool-Aid man their way through the wall and are like, you better hope you got another resurrection in you, cause it's false messiah mauling time. Unfortunately for our heroes, the throng of new Brother Blood devotees must not have adjusted their watches for daylight savings time, because they are of the opinion that it is not that time at all. They seem to think that it's time to surge forward menacingly to protect their new snake-skull-hatted savior from colorfully clad teenagers. Our heroes yell out to their brainwashed buddies and are like, Nightwing! Raven! Snap out of it! But Nightwing and Raven are like, Nah. Back in the emotion computer room, Mother Mayhem is like, This whole crowd has gone full hot tamale. Give Brother Blood the high sign to hoover up everybody's feelings. Blood turns to Raven and is like, Hey, remember how these guys suck and always made you wait in the car when they fought bad guys? And then how after you killed the extra-dimensional bad dad who lived in your bird-shaped soul tummy, they all ditched you just because you were dead? And how one of them's Beast Boy? Well, why not use your powers to make them all feel so bad about themselves that they just fall over and start crying and can't use their superpowers anymore? So, Raven uses her powers to make the Titans feel so bad about themselves that they just fall over and start crying and can't use their superpowers anymore. Bummer. Then Robot Man pipes up. Oh yeah, I almost forgot he came along for some reason. Robot Man's like, Feh, you kids and your fucking feelings. Back in my day, if we had a feeling, we bottled it up. And when that bottle filled up, we got a bigger bottle. And we always had plenty of bottles from all the heavy drinking we had to do to repress our feelings. It was a good system. Anyway, this snakehead guy seems like a real asshole, so uh, I'm gonna punch him. Brother Blood is like, nope. He channels the emotional energy of the crowd into a beam of raw power and shoots it at Robot Man, destroying his body and decapitating the determined do-gooder. Shit. Miles away in the Titan Tower, Frances Kane watches the battle unfold on television with tears in her eyes. She looks at the superhero costume Wally got her after she told him she definitely didn't want to be a superhero. You might think this would mitigate how sad she is watching Wally get destroyed on TV, but rather, it seems to galvanize her into action. With a newfound resolve, Francis heads towards the Titan Tower's control room. It's probably for the best that Fran walks away from the TV when she does, because she misses out on seeing a tearful Wally remove his mask and plead with Raven to think about how much he means to her and how sad it would make him if she murdered him. Raven does not speak, but it looks as though she may be about to relent. So Brother Blood steps in and zaps Wally with another one of those emotion bolts he used to blast Robot Man's head off. And he zaps the rest of the Titans as well for good measure. Reporter, and not-so-secret shill for the Church of Blood, Bethany Snow, goes over to Nightwing and is like, 
So where do you stand on the whole brother blood murdering your former teammates, Nightwing? Dick is like, the Titans were wrong to attack brother blood. Blood notices that Nightwing is having trouble saying the word wrong, so he figures that either his control over the adventure is slipping, or the Teen Titans' secret identity must be Arthur Fonzarelli. You know, because Fonzie couldn't say the word wrong. I guess he figures that Nightwing probably isn't Fonzie, because he decides to double down on the mesmerism. Once Blood has a firmer hand on the mental tiller, Nightwing continues his interview with less apparent trepidation. He's like, Brother Blood is great and the Titans stink. He should totally kill them. Well, that cinches it. He is definitely not Fonzie. They may have both started riding motorcycles at a very young age and have stern surrogate father figures, but the Fonz would never advocate for the murder of his friends. Well, maybe Potsy. Back at the Titan Tower, Fran has changed into the superhero outfit Wally got her. Calling herself Magenta, she addresses the group of random heroes I listed right before the previously in the new Teen Titans thing, and is like, well, you guys want to go save the Titans? Booster Gold answers for the group that of course they will. Hooray! Also, Booster Gold is speaking for a group that includes Batman and two Green Lanterns, and nobody tells him to shut up? Weird. To be continued. You know, even though we've now established that Nightwing definitely isn't Fonzie, I still kind of think Howard Cunningham would make a pretty good Batman. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going all right. How are you? I'm doing okay for the most part. I'm stoked that it finally feels like fall. I get to wear a shirt over another shirt right now, which is one of my favorite sartorial choices. I am doing the same thing. I've got a a regular t-shirt and a shirt with buttons on top of it. Not too shabby. I know. Look at us. We're restarting the grunge trend in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, mine's not flannel. Oh, mine's wool, actually. I think there was a lot of wool versus flannel confusion. Like, people were just going for anything plaid. Mmm. Tumultuous times. (laughs) Yep. Well, you ready to talk about a comic book? I sure am. Cool. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, I enjoyed it. It felt like it it moved along pretty good. I feel like it wasn't necessarily any surprise or anything we didn't know was coming and kind of the natural next step and how things are going to unfold. I was really annoyed, though, at something that Francis Kane's character also pointed out, which was like, why are the Titans sometimes super badass and sometimes super not so badass? Yeah, I get that, too. I mean, I think that's just the way that narrative has to work, especially like, I think this is the 90th issue of a new Teen Titans comic. So if you have constant escalation of the power threats, there's only so high you can go. They already fought an omnipotent guy. And so you can't have everything after that just be like super easy. But I know what you mean. And I understand Francis's frustration about that as well. That being said, Brother Blood's setting himself up as a pretty significant threat, seems like. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's got somehow the ability to make those charts that look like little stock market price things out of the emotional energy that people are investing in him. Yeah, yeah, they have those computers in the backstage area that are charting people's emotions, which is pretty damn impressive. Overall, I had similar thoughts to you. Actually, the first note that I wrote about this was, that was fucking rad. Mm. I really enjoyed this comic book. Going back and rereading it, I found different things to pick on and things that I found funny and issues that I had with it. But it was a very satisfying read, and the artwork is gorgeous. I'm so glad Eduardo Barreto's back as the primary penciler. And uh, yeah, he and Romeo Tangal did a great job. I think Paul Levitz, who once again did the scripting, uh, filling in the word bubbles and such, I think he's getting a better grasp on the characters. Some of them are still a little bit on the nose, but I'll take that. And yeah, overall, it was a very satisfying issue that I really dug. Yeah, there were a couple panels in particular that will come up when we talk about panels that both of them made me out loud say something like, oh my gosh, or that's really cool. Like, it, there was a very emotive uh, response to some of them. Yeah, and overall, I think everybody did a, did a real nice job on this. And I think part of it is, like you said, there were no big swerves. There were no real surprises. There were a couple of moments that are like, oh, I wasn't expecting that specifically. but uh. I think sometimes Wolfman has a tendency to lean too hard on the, well, I was going to do this, but this new idea just popped into my head, so I'm going to do that instead. And it's nice to see something that makes sense in what was established before, build towards its logical conclusion that had been set up before. And uh, I, I dug it. Yeah. How do you think the choice of which Titan's character got which contributor's name under it? I think some of it was probably arbitrary, but I definitely think everybody called Not It on Beast Boy until it got to the new letterer, Augustine Moss, who I, I've never seen that name appear in the credits before, so I think they're just like, all right, you're new. Hazing Ritual, you have to be Beast Boy. Mm-hmm. I found it curious, too, that Robin and um, Cyborg didn't. Nobody used them for their names. I think part of that is because Mike Gold, maybe out of frustration, was just like, all right, uh, I'm the consulting editor. That's a huge pain in the ass. So I'm going to be 20 fists raised in anger. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I am. Marv Wolfman, you are always having like super old timey references that you think are contemporary. So you're Robot Man. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody else just kind of at random, I think. Except for new guy, you have to be Beast Boy. Got it. But I did notice that too. Yeah, this is the first time for the credits. Each credit is listed under a different headshot of one of the heroes. And I thought that was cute. Yeah, me too. You mentioned Francis Kane's reaction to watching the Titans fight Brother Blood on TV, and she's not the only character whose reaction we get to witness. Uh, we get to see a bunch of people that are part of the Titans' lives react to seeing how they are handling themselves. 
And it's kind of an array of different things. We see that Terry Long is super freaking out and is like, where's Donna? What's going on? In a way that he really never has before. Do you think that maybe it's because he doesn't have a job right now? And and because he doesn't have a job, he's investing more of his energy in his relationship? or I think he's just doesn't have anything to distract him and so like he gets hyper focused on what's going on with donna because he doesn't have anything going on with himself no i think it's that he has been trying to find work but needs a good cover letter and um donna said she'd help him oh and then went (laughs) off on some adventure and he's just like now what do i do am i gonna (laughs) wait another three years to write like something i don't know I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Speaking of people who might be looking for new work, Sarah Charles, why are you trying to solder that multi-million dollar computer at Star Labs? You're a physical therapist. Well, she really didn't want to watch the debates. I mean, she didn't want to watch the uh, <laughs> the Brother Blood thing. Uh, very understandable. But, but still, that was one that made me just be like, Wait, what? Is this just another example of if you're in a comic book and you have doctor in front of your name, you can do anything that any kind of a doctor can do? Normally, we see it go the other way, where people with PhDs are treated as medical, as though they are medical doctors. But uh, it's interesting to see it go the other way, where people who are medical doctors are treated as though they have technological expertise. Mm-hmm. No, she's just trying to distract herself, you know? Yeah. Had some t- time to kill, so I'm just going to rewire this thing. It's just, that's Star Labs, man. That's like NASA-level shit. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's like her her hobby. And maybe it is because she, you know, specializes in cybernetic-related physical therapy. She does have to have more mechanical expertise, which I guess would make sense. Mm-hmm. But initially it was just kind of jarring and I started getting stressed out watching her. <laughs> it's just like, no, you can't do that. Careful you don't break that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we get Jillian, who just does not give a shit about Beast Boy. Finally. That never made any <laughs> sense to me. Yeah. It's like she has been so cool to him the whole time and he's been such a total shit to her. Yeah. I don't get it. Well, she's over it. And you know what? Good for her. It's not one of our minutiae segments anymore, but this issue had some awesome sound effects. Yeah, it did. I I was actually went to go start writing them down and was a little bit saddened that that wasn't a, a thing anymore. There were two specific sound effects that I think were predictive of future trends that were going to happen. Like, they were just so good that they ended up projecting themselves into the future and uh, got picked up by advertising agencies. One of them was the noise clump, of, of course, predicting the hit 2000 movie Meet the Clumps, where Eddie Murphy played a whole family. Mm-hmm. And the other one, even more impressively, predicted a Budweiser campaign from the same era when <laughs> Donna gets hit with some kind of an electro ray gun that makes the noise, What's up? <laughs> That's true. The clump sound effect 
comes when the Flash is super pissed off. His lips form the word butcher, but he screams it too swiftly to be heard. Still, the impact of a punch delivered at 200 miles an hour isn't as easily ignored. Which is a nice piece of prose, but I got really hung up on the details of it. Like, butcher! (laughs) Well, what it made me think was how rad it would be if he started playing with that a little bit more. Like, if he's actually moving faster than the speed of sound, and so he mouths the word, but then he moves faster than it, if after he punches the guy, then the insult that he just said is heard, I think that would be really cool and fun. But he's not moving faster than the speed of sound right now. Right now, Wally can only move at the speed of sound. And so I don't know how that's actually happening. And then it also says that the punch is going 200 miles an hour, which is significantly less than the speed of sound. So I don't know what's going on with that. No, he just said it really fast, because I guess in addition to running and stuff, he can also talk super fast. Oh! That's why I thought he sounded like a mouse. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, when you speed a tape up, like that. I think maybe he sounds like the Micro Machine guy. What's that? The Micro Machine guy? Uh, That doesn't ring a bell. Do you know Micro Machines? No. They were these miniature toy cars, and there was a guy who talked really fast in the commercial for Micro Machines. Oh. But I think he talks like that. The Micro Machine Man here presenting the genuine original, colossally collectible, most midget miniature replicas of the real things, Micro Machines. He talks fast like a guy who talked fast. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I see where you're going. I was able to follow that. Nice. I think it would be really cool if, like, you were able to, if you're moving faster than the speed of sound, so, like, you yell an insult, and then you move towards the guy, and he's like, oh, it looked like you just said something. And then he hits you in the face, and then you hear that he's just like, heads up! Ah. I think that would be a pretty good prank. Mm-hmm. Wally should really rededicate himself to some super speed pranks. Yeah, I mean, comedy's all about timing, right? Uh-huh. I like right after that, too, how just very much in touch with her feeling Starfire is. Yeah. She just says, you make me so angry, she says. She's like lasering guys almost to death. That was the main example I was thinking of when I said that Paul Levitz is getting better at writing for the Titans' particular voices, but some of the dialogue is still a little bit too on the nose. Yeah, that is the best example of that in there. There are others, but that was the one that mostly stood out to me. You are animals, all of you. You make me so angry. It's like, oh, yeah, because she's an angry character. How do I convey that here? But it doesn't get too bogged down in it for the most part because the action is all moving forward. So there's less space for the characters to just stand around and say what their deal is. Most mm-hmm. of the dialogue is moving towards furthering the action. And uh, it, it works out pretty well. It does. In that same sequence of events... Beast Boy says something that made me think that he gets admonished a lot. Like every time he goes to say something, Cyborg's just like, hey, don't interrupt. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think he's, he's referring to, to the boy Wonder, where he says, since we finally got somebody younger than me, I vote we make a new rule. And that's youngest doesn't interrupt until he learns how to shave. Which, on one hand, like the words make sense, but it's completely 
was it me or is that just like wildly out of context? Um, it didn't seem too out of context to me. Like I got what he was saying and I thought it made sense. It is a weird time to be saying that and that everybody has like Robin's trying to tell them something and they all have just decided, hey, shut up, Robin, you're too young to have an opinion. But I think it would make sense kind of for Beast Boy to be saying something dumb like that. And especially self-serving, because seeing as he is Beast Boy, I think he's generally covered in fine hair. So he's probably been shaving since he was eight. So even if the rule goes back once Robin leaves the team, then he still gets to have opinions because he uh, he's probably known how to shave for a while. Ah, well, cleverer than he looks. He would almost have to be. But it turns out Robin made a uh, pretty good discovery, which is that Arella is not dead. Yeah, we had talked the last issue about about how her death scene wasn't really given any space to have any impact. And so I'm glad to see that it's reversed now and that she's not actually dead. But I still feel that that is kind of the fundamental problem with it. I don't think it alleviates the problem because I think we were supposed to think that she was dead and it would have been nice to have had more time to feel the impact of that moment. And along similar lines... The death of Robot Man here. The fact that Arella is not dead after all, I think, undercuts the impact of that moment even further, because there is less of an assumption that he's dead necessarily. But dang, it sure does look like he just got killed and nobody says shit about it. Yeah, that was weird. I I was just harboring the hope that the brain can stay alive inside the Robot Man head. Yeah, or frankly, I mean, we've seen the brain like outside of it too in the uh, in the DC universe and in the Marvel universe because we saw Kyle could just uh, hang out in a fucking punch bowl for a while. Yep, bowl of drugs. Yeah, so <laughs> hopefully somebody's able to go pop Robot Man's uh, head in a bowl of drugs for a minute. This is your brain. <laughs> this is your brain in a bowl of drugs. Hey guys. <laughs> Thanks for putting me in this bowl of drugs. I feel cool. Oh, this PSA isn't having quite the impact we were hoping for. <laughs> One of the other many things that we learned about the fortress is that you have to be very careful of which light switches you turn on or off. Because it might just be a, a wall of energy that can zap you. You never know. Was that a light switch? I thought that was something the Confessor was doing. I mean, the Confessor looks like there's a little rectangular thing, and it's going click, and his hand's on it. Oh, man. I thought he was using his powers somehow. I was not paying close attention right there. He, like, runs away, and it's like, ah, good, I got away. Oh, totally. And I flip the light switch, and then the flash runs into it, and it's all <laughs> crackly. That's crackly. He sure does. And he says, woo! <laughs> Which is a weird, it's a weird exclamation. Yeah, it is a weird exclamation. He says a lot of weird things in this issue. And maybe not so many weird things as just unfortunate things. Mm. Like when he confronts Raven Ugh. and he's trying to make her realize the severity of her actions and like try to elicit an emotional response from her. He comes off as such a whiny little fucking turd. Yeah, I think anytime you frame your argument around that somebody else has made you love them. Yeah. And therefore they should behave in a certain way, your credibility is diminished pretty 
immediately. Yes. I mean, in this specific example, she did literally use her superpowers to make him love her. But in general, that is not a compelling argument. And it's not helpful in this situation. And he goes on to say, I never, ever did anything to hurt you. Oh, really? That is so incredibly untrue. Have you read this comic book, Wally? (laughs) He has been a big jerk in the past. The thing that I find most galling about this is her mother is dying in the other room, which is why they needed to rush to go see her. Maybe you open with the fact that your mother who you love is dying and only you can save her, rather than just assuming that your feelings, because they are the most important thing in the world to you, are the most important thing, period. Yeah, but at the same time, he's also dramatically pulling the little things under his eyes on his cowl down. So, I mean, that was that was pretty good. <laughs> That was pretty good. It looks like, yeah, he's trying to take off his cowl through his eye holes, like pull his whole head through there. He's so bad at that thing. He's probably tried like different like dramatic things in the mirror. Definitely. It's like, well, I can't I can't tear my whole suit off, but maybe these little pieces under my eyes, if I just yank on those, it'll come undone. I mean, you do notice that at this point, the Flash has dramatically larger eye holes than most heroes do so i wonder if that is so that he can do that effect if he Mm. had that design in mind kind of like hulk hogan in the 80s would have those big holes in the back of his t-shirt so that he could rip it off more easily i wonder if that's what's going on with the flash's cowl Mm. yeah it's like dramatic breakaway pants for your face exactly (laughs) (laughs) okay let's add that to our list of things to market man such a long list that we have made literally no progress on no no we haven't but lots of good ideas agreed so at the end of the issue we see the assortment of random heroes that francis who is now calling herself Magenta, which I have to believe was a typo on her part, and she meant to write Magneta, (laughs) has assembled at the Titan Tower. These are a group of very specific 1987 characters. How familiar with them were you? Um, I recognized Batman and Booster Gold and the Green Lanterns, but I didn't know which ones they were. Mm -hmm. I had to look up Skyman and uh, the awesomely named Dr. Midnight. Ooh, Dr. Midnight is awesome and is, you're right, awesomely named and awesomely spelled. I believe she is the first correctly spelled Dr. Midnight, but she is a legacy hero. There have been a lot of different Dr. Midnights dating back to, I think, the early 40s. But she is the newest iteration. Her and Skyman who used to be the Star-Spangled Kid, uh, who also started off in the 40s. You have the Green Lanterns are Jon Stewart and Kat Matui. Not to be confused with the uh, the former comedy show host. That's true. Different Jon Stewart. Indeed. And uh, yeah, I love that assortment of heroes. I also had never seen Booster Gold wear a cape before, and he's got way more of a buzz cut 
But I really like that group of heroes, and I'm curious as to what they're going to end up doing. You said you weren't familiar with Skyman. Uh, no, I, I was not, and I had to, had to do a little research there. One of the most interesting things about him to me is that when he started off, as I said, he was the star-spangled kid who was just a teenager who liked to go around and punch Nazis. Because, uh, yeah, who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting things was he was the first, and only for a very long time, example of the age reversal of the teenager-adult-sidekick-hero combination. He was the hero, and he had an adult sidekick named hmm. Stripesy. Wow. Which was pretty fun. And yeah, at this period, he had stopped going by the Star Spangled Kid and decided that now that he was a grown-up, he was going to call himself Skyman. And he had gotten himself some superpowers. At this point, I believe he can fly and maybe uh, shoot stars out of his belt. Something hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like an incredibly random assortment of heroes, and I'm not sure why Magneta decided that that was the gang that she wanted. She says that she didn't even know who most of them are. It doesn't seem like they would be at the top of the Teen Titans Rolodex, because most of them have never worked with any of these guys. Did she just thumb through the phone book or something? Well, it was the the Titans computer banks knew how to reach them. So I think she just went in and and did a, you know, kind of proto-googling of, you know, heroes that can help rescue the Titans. And the computer was just like, well, everybody's busy except, um, you know, these six. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I bet the rest of them are either stoked or intimidated to be hanging out with Batman all of a sudden, because mm-hmm. most of them are kind of B-listers. I guess the exception there would be, at that time, they were trying to make Booster Gold more of a thing. He was a pretty new hero at the time, and uh, I think he was going to be one of our new hot shit new heroes. And John Stewart was kind of the main Green Lantern at the time, and... The woman with him, uh, Kat Matui, the red Green Lantern, she ended up being his wife. I'm not sure if they were married at this point. She has an interesting history, and one that reminded me of the opening letter in this comic book, which I did want to touch on briefly. Did you have the In My Opinion section in your copy of the comic? I did not, unfortunately. So it opens with an opinion piece by Julia Sabag, and it's this letter about how unfortunate it is that such a small percentage of comic books are aimed at female readers, and how that's something that she really thinks should be addressed, and how beneficial it would be to give young girls woman heroes that they could look up to. What's notable about that, first of all, I completely agree. I think it's a it's a well-written letter and an excellent sentiment. But at the end, there's the typical disclaimer, which I know they have to have, but there is a slight difference in the wording that I think is very telling. Instead of the the views reflected in this do not necessarily reflect those of the company, it just says the views and opinions expressed in this column do not reflect the views, opinions, or position of DC Comics Incorporated. Whoa. Which I'm like, yeah, I mean, that is evident. 
<laughs> Damn. I'm sure that is like a legal disclaimer, and that is probably an overlooking, but the removal of the word necessarily there is very telling, especially as it relates to Kat Matui, unfortunately. Who are you familiar with the phrase uh, "women in fridges" or "fridging" in comic books? Yeah, yeah, like using the death of a female character as the motivation for what happens next. Mm-hmm. She gets fridged not once but twice. Oof. She gets murdered to motivate Hal Jordan, the uh, Silver Age Green Lantern, and then there's a whole thing. She gets resurrected. And then she gets murdered again to motivate Jon Stewart when Hal Jordan has gone evil. Sheesh. So, yeah. Man, I, I know we've talked about this a bunch on the show already, but I mean, I know that's still a pretty common trope in, mm-hmm. in things. But like watching all of the like mid to low budget action movies that were available at like the local video store when I was a kid in the 80s yeah like it seemed like all of them (laughs) had that yeah no that trope was just it was so common that you just took it for granted that that was going to be a part of pretty much every action movie like i mean starting with death wish but i'm Mm -hmm. sure way before death wish too yeah yuck shitty old world isn't it Mm mm-hmm On a lighter note, Robot Man doesn't get a ton of dialogue in this before he gets exploded by Brother Blood, but what dialogue he does get is a goddamn delight. (laughs) That is true. He seems so old-timey in this, and I have never seen the word baloney spelled out B-U-L-L hyphen O-N-Y. I love the idea that he's just like, I'm not dealing with this fancy G's in this baloney word. (laughs) I'm a straight shooter who doesn't understand complex spelling patterns. It's bull-oney. Whatever hokum you pulled on those kids, don't expect it to work on me, lady. There's one man who's not buying it. And then, unfortunately, he gets exploded. It is odd that Raven's emotional manipulation didn't work on him. I mean, he very much has a human brain, if no other human parts, and you would think that her powers would operate on the limbic system, which is definitely there. He's not an emotionless being. Maybe just having the metal shell around his head provides some shielding from that or something. Like a psychic Faraday cage. Exactly. But I liked his old-timey dialogue a lot. Yeah, me too. Speaking of old-timey people, there is a weird news segment where Jack Kirby is interviewing what looks like Mr. Fantastic and an old prospector, who I guess are both priests? Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. Like, maybe they were supposed to be from different religious denominations of some sort. Yeah, but that one guy really does look like an old prospector, right? Sure, yeah. He's got the grizzled old beard and and the old-timey kind of western-looking hat. And so when I was reading his dialogue, I couldn't help but read it. May I ask you with your cameras and special effects, could not the whole book of Genesis be imitated? 
That would not make it an act of the almighty. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a that's a good prospector you do. Thank you. I think maybe he's the like maybe he's supposed to be the undertaker. Oh. And then uh so the Mr. Fantastic looking guy would be his Paul Bearer? Yep. <laughs> oh, well, I see what you did there. So then you would have the George, if this was real, why did blood refuse to allow access to the other religious scholars or scientists during the so-called rebirth? Yep. Okay. Glad we got that sorted. Me too. I love the too, like, right after that, it cuts to the news guy who's like, well, you've heard the experts, but true or false, <laughs> it happened. <laughs> yep. I do think in terms of Brother Blood's plan, it seems like everything's coming together for him pretty well. But it's not like he doesn't have any missteps in this. For one thing, it really did crack me up when he took Zack Wingman aside and was just like, Hey, great job flapping around, buddy. You were the key to this whole thing. How, how was that a misstep? I mean, I guess it's not a misstep. It's just a dumb, goofy thing to say because Zach Wingman didn't do shit. Oh, I know, but he did. it was just like a, it was a pep talk, you know? Yeah, I guess. I think he saw an opportunity to just engender loyalty in an albeit maybe somewhat useless <laughs> character. But, you know, it's like giving a kid a nickname. Not that kids are useless characters, but like, <laughs> well... giving a kid a, <laughs> a nickname, right? It's like, okay, now I've got this uh, this bond with this person, and they're more likely to, I don't know, do their homework or something, because I gave them a nickname. Hmm, good thinking. I should be writing this shit down. <laughs> How to manipulate children, who Gory insists are not worthless beings. <laughs> okay, so that may not have been a misstep, but what I think probably is, is maybe risking squandering some of the fabulous PR you have just spent so much time building up by executing a bunch of teenagers on live television, which it really seems like is his plan. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, if not his, definitely Mother Mayhem's plan. Yeah, and uh, Nightwing is all for it, too. Yeah, man, his evil face sure is evil. Nightwing's? Yeah. He looks very evil. Yeah, you're right, he does. And gassy. <laughs> it's interesting because, so I talked before about the fact that Paul Levitz did the scripting, and we've discussed, I think, before that what that means is Marv Wolfman came up with the plot for the issue, discussed it with the penciler Eduardo Barreto, and he and Romeo Tangal did all the art, and then Paul Levitz went and filled in the word bubbles. And... There seems to be a little bit of a discrepancy in the portrayal of Nightwing. Like, the art team seems to be portraying him having a lot of inner conflict about what he's doing, and Levitt seems to be, like, pointedly resisting that. I, I think his one concession was putting a question mark at the end of a sentence. It shows a close-up of Nightwing crying as Starfire is getting smacked around. And it says, no hand is raised in her defense, nor a tear shed over her fall. And then it shows a close-up on Nightwing's eye, and there's tears coming out of it. Mm -hmm. That just, it, it struck me as very odd. And 
throughout it, it looked like Nightwing was very conflicted, but every time he is described, it is as being emotionless, which is definitely not what we are seeing and not what Paul Levitz was seeing as he was filling in those word bubbles. Yeah, he's stammering a lot and repeating words and such. Yeah, it seemed almost like a, like, willful thing that he's just like nope i know what i'm seeing and i know what it says and i know he's looking surprised there and saying huh but he's not showing any emotion got it yeah man that bethany snow keeps just doing a bad job i mean she's doing a good job for what her job is yeah she's doing a good job of being bad Mm mm-hmm Unfortunately, there will be no shortage of media opportunities for her going forward. Yeah. I'm sure. Yep. Uh, fart noise and finger to her. <laughs> Evocative. Well, she earned it. Yep. I don't know if you could hear that, but that was two middle fingers, in fact. No, no, that was strongly implied. <laughs> Good. You about ready to get into the minutia? Yeah, why not? Okay. I'm going to set that up again. Well, Corey, you ready to get into the minutiae? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Let's go to the one that I think was the hardest for me, and that's the Bozone. Ooh. All right, Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. One instance of a character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, stood out to you the most. Well, we did have a couple of the the standard uh, short pants comments about Robin's outfit, Mm -hmm. but... The one that stood out to me the most was a little bit of dialogue, which was Robin kind of dissing himself on page seven, where he basically says, like, I'm not as good as you guys, and I'm freaked out by everything that's going on, so I'm just going to kind of hang out here with the almost dead Arella while you guys go have the fight. Mm-hmm. And he said something that I had, I had to look it up because I hadn't heard the phrase before, but he says... How about this Sandlot player staying behind to play medic on the bench? And I was like, okay, Sandlot bench. That's like a sounds like a baseballish metaphor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess Sandlot playing is just you know a bunch of kids or a bunch of people find an open field somewhere and play ball, whether you know kickball or or baseball or something. But the idea being that it's not professional. Also, turns out it's a term for a non-professional league of senior citizen baseball players Ooh, so i don't know if you're familiar with the movie the sandlot which is about a bunch of kids playing baseball but that discovery of yours means that they could make a sequel like 50 years down the road uh-huh. of the same guys getting together again yeah and uh i think nostalgia being what it is that'd probably sell pretty well yeah, that came up in my search, too. I'm kind of curious to see that. I, I don't know what role uh, James Earl Jones played in it, but he's always good to see. Yeah, I told you about seeing him play a karate coach in The Best of the Best recently, right? I gotta watch that. Oh, you really do. It's not good. <laughs> 
But Eric Roberts is from Portland, Oregon in it. Well, that's something. Yup. So, yeah, I got one Sandlot player. What do you got? Oof. Uh, yeah, it was a difficult one. I really wanted to give it to Bull Oni, but it wasn't really an insult. The only real instance of somebody dissing somebody else was uh, Kid Flash, or I guess just the Flash now, whispering the word butcher and then uh, running ahead and punching the guy and then having the word butcher catch up with him later. I like the thing about Robin being too young to shave, I think was zinger adjacent, but uh, not quite an insult. And yeah, other than you're catching Robin insulting himself, there really wasn't a ton to go on. So uh, yeah, I went with Butcher, but I think you got the winner there. Thank you. Yeah, he starts it off, too, by being really self-deprecating. He says, as much as I like running 10 feet behind you, we all know I'm out of my league. Yeah. Like, dang, buddy. What's interesting is how he is applauded for expressing that sentiment, because Donna is like, yeah, wow, it's really mature of you to notice that you're not as good as the rest of us. Good for you. Robin, you're a lot older than anyone gives you credit for. But then she follows that up by pinching his cheek, and he says, aww. <laughs> yeah, mixed message, man. If you're gonna be complimenting a teen on his maturity, don't pinch his cheek. Don't do it. Which does bring us into our next category. Every Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? So, I went with Frances Kane for putting aside her feelings of not wanting to deal with heroing and her abilities, and taking direct action to go rescue the team, because she came to the realization, shit, if I don't do it, who else is going to? So she put on her cool new uniform and called the six available heroes that the computer knew and um yeah took action yeah so good job good job francis kane agreed good for her i actually had robin for recognizing his limitations uh that is a big step and a difficult one for someone to take especially at his age and uh i thought good for him on that list, I also potentially had Jillian for finally being like, fuck Beast Boy. Mm -hmm. Now she's not really a teen titan, but she's a teenager and she uh, has a very colorful uniform. So eh, I thought she was maybe close enough, but I did decide to give it to Robin. On my list for Beast Boy, I did have Donna as a potential choice for doing such a bad job telling Robin how mature he was while pinching his cheek. I also had Zach Wingman on my list for being like, I'm a good, good flappy boy <laughs> after not doing jack shit. But ultimately, I decided to go with Wally West for reasons we have mostly already discussed, just centering his own feelings over the fact that Raven's mom is dying and assuming that that will be the most important thing for her, too. Mm hmm. Good call there. Yeah, I'd, Wally was in strong contention for the Beast Boy Award 
for me. Ultimately, I made an exception to my normally I don't ding people that are under some sort of mind control. Mm-hmm. But I just really didn't like how... Like, Dick has historically, I feel like, been able at the last second to kind of break through whatever's bugging him or whatever sort of control has been imposed upon him when something like really emotionally compelling is happening Mm -hmm. and he's seeing starfire like basically getting killed and like you know reaching out to him and like crying and he's just like yeah whatever brother blood's the best yeah it's like come on man i don't like that i hear you i don't i don't like it either i mean you would think his like years of training slash abuse at batman's hands would have prepared him for that eventuality yeah. Who did you have as your president of the drama club? Which character was acting, or rather overacting, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? Yeah, there was no shortage of possibilities here. In strong contention, I had Frances Kane for grabbing her face in a couple panels in a dramatic way, and then mm-hmm. tossing aside the box with her uniform. Like, you gotta be pretty dramatic to throw a box of clothing yep but ultimately i went with on page 10 terry long for it starts off with him just doing the double fist shake like into the camera and then double handed head grab a couple times (laughs) and then just like shouting like why why who will write my cover letter now (laughs) i think that is a solid choice i ultimately went with wally west for reasons that we discussed of him maybe trying to take off his cowl by (laughs) pushing his head through the eye hole because that's the more dramatic way to do it and his ultimately centering his own emotions in the conversation but yeah there was no shortage of options i had jericho in very strong contention because he does that thing where as he is hit with the wave of raven emotion um he does the very classic Oh, heaven forfend thing where he puts his wrist on his forehead as he falls backwards. <laughs> That's pretty dramatic. It really is. So yeah, he was in that discussion as you mentioned. Francis was in there, Terry was in there. There is almost I would be hard pressed to find a character who doesn't have their eyes welled up with tears at some point in this comic book. Maybe Robot Man doesn't, but I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's a lot of tears shed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, ultimately, I, I gotta go with Wally. That's fair. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy in this issue? So we already talked about Dr. Midnight a little bit. On page 29, it introduces her, and her her uniform is really cool. It's got Mm. this moon, not a half moon, but what do you call it when it's just like a little sliver? Like that shape moon? Crescent moon? Uh, I think it's called a DreamWorks moon. Yep, she's got a DreamWorks moon on her forehead, and then that motif is carried through onto the torso of her costume, Mm -hmm. which is uh, black and yellow, which is always a good good combination. Mm Mm-hmm. It's got those blue night vision goggles on it, which Mm -hmm. is pretty rad. Yep, yep. Got her infrared powers going on. So, uh, yeah, her uniform is awesome. And Mm -hmm. um, I really like Magenta's costume also. That looks, to me, very, very cool. Very 80s 
Kind of reminded me of Ambush Bug. <laughs> oh, I can see that. Yeah, it's like a mix between Ambush Bug and uh, Spider Woman. The original Spider Woman's costume was a lot like that, except for in different colors. But yeah, it's it's a really weird, cool kaleidoscopic pattern of magenta and white and black mm-hmm. that is just crisscrossing over her torso. It's it's very cool looking. Yeah. Her head is covering up the bottom of the moon on Dr. Midnight's outfit, so you can't see if there's a little boy with a fishing pole on her costume. But you got to imagine that there probably is. I also really enjoyed some of the ancillary characters' outfits. On page 18, there is a crowd scene where all of Brother Blood's new converts, I guess, are running towards the screen saying, Blood, blood, blood. And one of the ladies is just wearing this giant purple and black scarf that I, that caught my eye. Did you have any uh, bystander characters? I did. So on, on page 12, there's a bunch of heads shouting, blood, blood, we believe. And there is a man in the, in the center of that who I don't know what is going on. I think he's wearing three different turbans. Yeah. I had a thought about that. I think he might have made a turban out of neckties, because that's what it looks like is going on there. Mm. Like, Mm. you remember when mom had that skirt that was made out of neckties because it was like... Power tie skirt. Yeah, that was like, I'm going to take this symbol of traditional male power and turn it into a skirt. Mm -hmm. I think that dude might be doing a similar thing where he's like, I'm going to take this traditional Western business thing and turn it into a power turban. Mm. But it is a very distinct look and a very confusing one to me. Yeah. Two different kinds of purple, some stripes, blue and stripes. Mm -hmm. It's a turban made out of neckties. Mm -hmm. First one of those I've seen. On the next page, too, there's a different crowd scene where there appears to be... Ladybug man? (laughs) Well, there's late that panel's got a bunch. Yeah, there's Ladybug Man. There's a dude in a Ladybug sweater in the background. And then closer to the foreground, there is an Asian Southern Colonel. I was going to say, yeah, I I called him Asian Colonel Sanders in my notes. Yeah, which is it's just a very distinct look and one that I was surprised to see as part of just a random crowd scene. The panel to the left of that, above, or to the right, has um, Ernest Hemingway. Oh, totally! <laughs> the, the turtleneck sweater and the big beard. Mm-hmm. And then on the very next page, you get another dude with just big bass player energy. <laughs> like, bass player in a fog hat cover band energy. Oh, yeah. Like, you see that Brother Blood has really attracted people from literally every walk of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. We discussed already the artwork in this issue is very, very good. What was your favorite panel? Oof. I have the two full-page spreads that I mentioned earlier um, that caused me to, you know, say, like, wow, out loud, tied for first place. Mm-hmm. There is page 16. I just called it the Titans. And it's when they finally smash through the ceiling or the wall. And, you know, kind of jump down on Brother Blood in the crowd. And it's viewed from above looking down. And uh, it's just very cool. 
yeah, it's beautiful. It's yeah, page 16 and 17. It's a double page spread of the Titans bursting into the amphitheater where the ceremony is taking place. And Beast Boy is a giant woolly mammoth and he looks pissed. And it's just a gorgeous action scene. Yeah. It conveys a feeling of movement more effectively than than many other panels I've seen too. Like you really get this sense that they're descending really quickly and it's just dynamic and chaotic and there's rubble flying everywhere and yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. What was your other the other one I called Divine Wrath. It's on page twenty six. It's the one where Brother Blood uses all the crowd's emotional energy to make a giant explosion that propels the Titans into the viewers. Yeah. Right into your face, basically. And it's got little like kind of like when you draw the sunrise and it has all those rays shooting out in every direction. Mm-hmm. It's got that behind all this Kirby crackle and electricity and then the silhouette of Brother Blood doing his spell or whatever it is. Yeah, and the the Titans' faces are all contorted in pain and surprise, especially Wonder Girl's face on that is really nicely drawn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those those are both tremendous panels, and I was tempted to pick one of those as mine, but I was also fairly confident that you probably would just because they're so good. And so I decided to go with a couple of panels that kind of cracked me up, that I still thought were very well drawn, but that there was something about that made me chuckle. One of them is the full-page spread on page 20 of Raven giving the Titans the business with her emotion powers and telling them that, you guys were a bunch of dicks who always made me wait in the car. Fuck you! But it is a gorgeous panel of her in her new white outfit spreading her wings out, doing the, like, finger-wiggle magic at the gang. But she says, But I have conquered the darkness in my soul, and with Brother Blood's help found new power within. Power you shall feel. And what cracked me up about it is, Flash is saying, No, Raven, no! And Cyborg is saying, Hey! Yeah. <laughs> I really just like his his reaction to her being like, I'm going to use all my emotion-manipulating powers on you. He just goes, hey! Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of my favorite bits of dialogue in the whole comic. The other one that really cracked me up is from a panel that we see of... It's one of a number of reaction shots of people around the world watching Brother Blood on the television. It is on page 15, and it is a family watching on television as Brother Blood is saying, I shall lead you to a better world. And there's a little kid in a white turtleneck with green overalls, which I used to have that exact outfit when I was about his age, and a similar bowl cut. Mm -hmm. He looks completely shocked. His mother looks somewhat conflicted. And behind him, his father is smoking a pipe thoughtfully and seems to be thinking, hmm. This, uh, snake-skull-hatted fellow seems to have some interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. The way he is just thoughtfully smoking his pipe while watching a madman scream about blood on his television, I just think is terrific. Yeah, I know we've talked about it a lot before, but just the fact that... <laughs> I guess it strains credibility a little bit. 
that this guy is so creepy looking. Yeah. To be a, you know, popular cult leader. It also strains credibility a little bit how long he has been on television at this point. This has been a pretty long ceremony, multiple hours, and he doesn't seem to have licked blood off of anything that we've seen. I know. People are staying glued to the set. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's going to lick blood off of something soon. You just can't get enough of that stuff. That happens sooner or later. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, there was a couple. They weren't 100% like timestampy to the year, but they were within a few years. One was on page seven, and I think it's Beast Boy makes a reference to the show Trapper John M.D. Mm-hmm. That was the one that I had. And um, on page 10, when uh, Jillian's talking about what a shit Beast Boy is, she says she doesn't care if he goes off and joins the Moonies. Yeah, both of those are kind of dated timestamps, which does lead me to believe that Levitz is getting a pretty good feel for Marf Wolfman's dialogue. Yeah, yeah, I know, Moonies have been around for a long time at that point. I, I think they were a little bit in the news at the time. I googled it, and there was a uh, court case, I don't remember if it was Supreme Court or how high it went, where uh, they ruled that they weren't protected as a religious organization from being able to be sued by former members. Oh. And so that was that was going on at that time in the in 88. Oh, good to know. I always think of them as being a mid to late 70s phenomena. Mm-hmm. Because I know they like held vigils for Nixon when he was being impeached and shit. Ugh. Yeah, I had the Trapper John one, and I also had the specific assortment of heroes that she put together at the end. The fact that Booster Gold was front and center, and it even seemed like Batman was maybe deferring to him a little bit. He's even richer than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love Booster Gold. I was kind of surprised you were familiar with him. I think I'm familiar with him only because of your love for him. Ah. You've been talking about him over the years. Yeah. Do you know his origin? Mm-mm. He is from the future, where he was a disgraced former athlete who had to retire due to gambling charges against him, uh, which were founded. So he got a job as a janitor in a superhero museum and then just swiped a bunch of shit and came to the past and got a bunch of product endorsements. Wow. Yeah. He truly was a hero for the 80s. That is that is an incredible backstory. That is great. Yeah. And, you know, through that found redemption and actual heroism. But, uh, yeah, I think he's a phenomenal character. But having him front and center, specifically in a room where Batman is present is something that I think you would only see in, like, 87, 88. Mm. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! What is Aqualad probably up to in the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go from the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord? May. Well, let's see. On the 27th of May, 1988, it was a Friday. It was 32 and change years ago. Um, 
it was a leap year. Oh. Uh, the Chinese zodiac sign for that time was the <laughs> dragon, and the star sign is Gemini. It may sound like I'm stalling a little bit. <laughs> Webster's Dictionary defines May as... <laughs> and the reason I, I stall is because it's this is something that's come up before. It's maybe a little bit of a trope, but you'll recall in the past that Aqualad to make a small contribution to the world being a better place had leveraged President Ronald Reagan's love of jelly beans and his connections in the confection industry to Mm -hmm. squeeze the supply a little bit and make it difficult for Reagan to get his forgetful old hands on those delicious (laughs) little sugary blobs. (laughs) And uh, once again, Aqualad had to make some calls to his friends at, uh, you know, Jelly Beans International and other companies like that, because he was really freaked out, as so many of us were in the 80s, about nuclear proliferation, and was very much interested in getting Reagan to uh, to meet with Gorbachev and sign the INF, or the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was a treaty that would reduce and eventually eliminate uh, intermediate and uh, shorter-range missiles between the two nations. And uh, Reagan was was reticent to do this, so Aqualad made some calls and then arranged a meeting with the president, and it's like, hey, um, brought you a gift, Mr. President. Here's these, these jelly beans, and there's more where these came from. But there is a treaty that I think that you should really, you know, sponsor, that you should get behind. So it was on the 27th of, of May, 1988, that the U.S. put its uh, support behind the treaty, and it was later uh, ratified on uh, June 1st of 1988. And it banned both nations' land-based ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, and, uh, and launchers with ranges of uh, 500 to 1,000 kilometers, which was considered short and medium range. It didn't apply to air or sea-launched missiles, so there was some more work to do there. But by May 1991... The two nations had uh, eliminated almost 2,700 missiles, which was also followed by a a 10-year of on-site verification inspections between the two nations. So, good job, Aqualad. That said, later, in uh, October of 2018, President Trump did withdraw us from that treaty, citing supposed (sighs) Russian noncompliance. But, um... Aqualad hasn't found his Achilles jelly bean yet, so we can hope. Indeed. Yeah, well, that was part of what Aqualad was up to in May of 1988. Another thing that he was doing was watching some television and being inspired by it. Aqualad was a big fan of Miami Vice. And hey. (laughs) Who wasn't? (laughs) I have a picture of us from our uncle's wedding that uh, would certainly indicate that we were both big fans of Miami Vice. No socks allowed. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Yeah, those are some adorable pictures, by the way. Oh, man. Of, like, us, me being a little kid, you being a teenager, and us both trying our damnedest to look like Don Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) But Aqualad was also a big fan, and so he ended up using some of Speedy's DEA contacts from his government work and saying, hey, can I come down to Florida and help you guys bust some drugs? And so, you know, he put on his pink button-down shirt with no tie and unbuttoned it down to the navel and put on his uh, 
turquoise jacket over it, headed down to Tarpon Springs, Florida, where he helped the government seize 4,200 kilograms of cocaine on May 3rd. Then went back to his hotel room, chilled out for a few days, and on May 6th, new episode of Miami Vice came on. You watched that? Pretty good. Had a unknown-at-the-time actress named Julia Roberts as a guest star. And it was an episode called Mirror Image, in which Sonny Crockett got bonked on the head and thought that he was his undercover character who was somewhat nefarious. <laughs> Aqualad was so surprised by this, he leapt up and bumped his own noggin. Oh, no. And suddenly started thinking, oh, probably the same thing happened to me. That's why I'm having all these shady thoughts right now. It occurred to him that he was still a little bit sore at Wally West for the whole, you know, leaving him tied up in the hands of a madman with a magic hat addiction and just forgetting about him. And specifically Wally, because Wally didn't even go to Zandia with the rest of the team and then convinced them somehow that he had. So he was pretty peeved at Wally. And he's like, you know what I bet it'd show him? If I made somebody do something faster than him. Wally yeah. West at this point had just come out to the world as the Flash. Immediately after the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths, he revealed his secret identity and let everyone know that Barry Allen had been the previous Flash and that they should be honoring his legacy. And so Aqualad was like, man, that lousy, no good, fresh maker leaving jerk hole. I'm going to go swipe some of that cocaine that I just helped seize and give it to this fella named John Mosquita who is about to attempt a record for fast-talking. <laughs> and, with the help of Aqualad and a not inconsiderable amount of stolen cocaine, John Mosquita ended up setting the record for fast-talking with 586 words per minute. Whoa, that's a lot of words per minute. Mm-hmm. Soon after, Aqualad realized that he didn't actually have any form of amnesia, and that was pretty obvious in the fact that he remembered what a jerk Wally West had been and was upset at him for abusing Aqualad in the past, and that he really had some things he needed to work out. But he also had helped John Mosquito win that title, and uh, yeah, that's all I got. It was a tough month. <laughs> it was a tough month. It was everything that happened was either like legitimately tragic or really boring. So it, it was a tough month for Aqualad to figure out what to do. Mm. So there was a little bit of stretching there. <laughs> hey guys, this is Editor Hub in the future. So that Aqualad story has a twist that then Hub didn't realize and I just discovered. So remember earlier in this episode when I was trying to explain to Corey who the Micro Machines guy was? I mean, first of all, can you believe Corey didn't know who the Micro Machines guy was? And second of all, the Micro Machines guy is John Mosquita, who won that fast-talking competition. I know! Mind blown. Anyway, 
Thanks for joining us, Corey. I had fun talking about this comic with you. Me too. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'll be back soon to talk some Defenders with you, and uh, a little bit after that to talk some more New Teen Titans with you. Find out what this Brother Blood guy's plans are. I'm sure they're pretty rational. He looks like a reasonable guy. Mm. He's stopped wearing Jesus's prayer shawl as a peekaboo crotch curtain, which is a step in the right direction. That's true. If you have any questions for us about Jesus's prayer shawl being worn as a peekaboo crotch curtain or anything else, you can reach us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We actually got some very nice things in the uh, P.O. Box recently. Got a stack of Titans-related comic books, including the Teen Titans Index, which I'm sure will be really useful for the show, and a promotional poster for Crisis on Infinite Earths by George Perez, which is great. Those were sent in by Eric Engelhardt. Thanks, Eric. We also got a pie recipe book so that we can bake some pies not made out of steel. There was not a note on that, so I'm not sure exactly who they're from, but thank you very much. It's very thoughtful, and uh, I'll bake some pies. Nice. So thanks, guys. We're also on a bunch of different social media places. You can probably find us there if you look for them. I said some stuff about Paul Reiser that seemed to resonate with people, so stay tuned for our upcoming Paul Reiser podcast. A riser tide lifts all moods. Ooh. So, yeah, you can probably find us on the internet if you want to learn what I think about Paul Riser. And maybe I'll say some other things. You never know for sure. If you can't find us on the internet, well, there's another place that you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be there, hanging out. Trying not to lick blood off of everything. But I gotta tell you, there's a lot of blood in here. Cozy, though. Yeah, no, it's, it's nice. I'm, I'm just saying, it's not a problem. I'm just saying there is a lot of blood. So maybe someone could be excused for accidentally licking some of it. Because, you know, there's a lot. Thanks. <laughs> If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by checking us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland and uh, making a donation. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of exclusive content that we make just for our donors. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast I do with my wife, Lisa. That's pretty fun. There's also a whole bunch of bonus video reviews of classic comics. I've been doing some uh, Halloween-adjacent themed comics recently. Talked about the Monster Frankenstein series and some Phantom Stranger. I think there's a Planet of the Vampires one I'm going to do soon. But, uh, you know, some some spooky adjacent titles. And uh, maybe you would enjoy seeing those. If not... I'd still appreciate it if you felt like making a donation if you're in a position where you feel you can do so. It means a lot to me. Let's us know that you appreciate the work that we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you for everyone who's been so generous with your support. 
If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is to leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. And if you don't know if a review can be left in a place, hey, just give it a shot. Started to say what's the worst that could happen, but mm. this year has taught me not to say that phrase. Nope. Recent review we received on Apple Podcasts says, Titanic fun, five stars. You wouldn't believe what this podcast has done for our sex life. What? Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That is very flattering and confusing, but I very much appreciate the sentiment. It did lead to me when I was editing the most recent episode that came out. I kept yelling at the screen every time I had to edit out an um or a er. Jesus Christ, guys, get it together. People are trying to fuck to this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you're fucking to this podcast, <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, and uh, keep up the great work. You're doing super. Little to the left. Oh. And some general good sex advice, right? A little to the left? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Me either, but I'm glad we could help. I'm not to yuck anybody's yum, though, so. Yeah, a lot of people, Corey, are very into a little to the left. Good to know. Mm-hmm. I've learned so much. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Uh, in the meantime, little to the left. Okay. Corey, you got any sex advice for our listeners? I think they've gotten enough out of this episode. <laughs> You're probably right. Okay, bye, guys. Bye. And they know it. I'm just a micromachine man, but this isn't just a plane, it's a new perfectly precise dependency styled micromachine cargo plane playset that holds 15 micromachines with amazingly mini military features, open and closed nose, real working ramps, elevator, and cargo door. Better get it before it takes off. The new micromachine mini cargo plane playset from Galoob. Remember, if it doesn't say micromachines, it's not the real thing. Places, if and you like... <laughs> Stupid words, I hate words, they're dumb. Oh my gosh. Never using them again. That's a lie. Ah, uh, fine.